powered by OME Gear, this is Do It In Nature, and we are Stace and Jules. In this day and age of screens, many of us find our refuge in the great outdoors. Some have even built careers to help others experience the power and wonder of nature. In this podcast, we are on a mission to help those people tell their story in hopes of inspiring more people to get outside. So join us as we dive in and explore how people do it in nature. Hello, listeners. Thank you for hitting play on this Do It in Nature podcast episode. We are thrilled to be with you and joining you in whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're working in the garden or you're on a walk or you're exercising in the gym or whatever you're doing. We are thrilled that you hit play on this. And I think you're going to be really excited too. Uh, we have a bit of a legend on the mic with us today to tell his story. Are you talking about me? Yeah. <laughs> to tell Thanks. his story. Oh. <laughs> um, but before I introduce <laughs> the legend, um, I also want to introduce another legend. Yes, thank you. Um, Stace is my co-host. I'm the host of this show, Do It In Nature. And uh, we have a company called OME Gear. Uh, we are the inventors of a really transformational, innovative product. Um, and we started this podcast because we wanted to encourage people to get outside more. And so that's what we do. We bring really amazing guests who have done some pretty noteworthy things that are connected to the outdoors. And today is absolutely no different. So on the call today, we have Kenji. And Kenji, I'm going to take a stab at your last name. Let's see if I get it right. Harotunian. Very good. That is right on the money, Stace. All right. I love it. I mean, Jules. That's all right. That's right. So, um, so Kenji Haratunian, we've got on the mic with us and, uh, we have been connected to Kenji now for a while. Cause we're going to be a part of a trade show, um, that or an exhibit, um, event that he is spearheading the organization of. So we are thrilled to be a part of that, but we've just been kind of following Kenji and what he's doing and involved in, and are honestly honored to have mm. uh, you on the show today, Kenji. So thanks for saying yes and jumping on this with us. Well, thanks for having me. I, I do appreciate uh, the time to talk with to folks. I, I feel like uh, I have an interesting story to share. Uh, I love the idea of encouraging people to get outdoors, get in the wild when they can. For me, it's been uh, really most of my life a uh, a great way to cope with the stresses of being a city kid and of finding my own way and um, developing a career, you know, certainly not by design, but um, I suppose the combination of uh, being invested in it and just having the opportunities. So, so this is one of those opportunities. So thanks. That's great. You got it. So how about if we do this, how about if we start, we'll turn the mic over to you and just ask you to, to tell us a little bit about yourself, where'd you grow up? Um, and you said you, you talked about the city. So what was that like? I mean, where, was it kind of a concrete jungle that you lived in? You know, like what did you spend a lot of time outside? Were you always drawn to the outdoors? Just kind of paint the picture of your growing up years. Yeah. So I'm from, uh, I'm from Los Angeles, uh, certainly the definitive concrete jungle. Um, 
And from the inner city, I lived in the Crenshaw area there till I was about six. And then my family moved to Culver City, which is uh, another part of the urban jungle here, but uh, a little further west. And that's where I'm calling or uh, calling in from now. So uh, Culver City, California is my hometown. I've lived in this area, um, you know, since I was a kid, but I, I spent some time living in other places, but mostly around Southern California and relatively close to the beach or the ocean. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't start out as a person who was immersed in the outdoor uh, culture, like so many folks in the industry that I work with, uh, who really their families were taking them out since they were children, and then their families before that. So this generational exposure to outdoor recreation. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my family was very, um, in what they thought was important was getting good grades and being dedicated to school and, and really committed to kind of the more um, in-town experiences. So it was really, I, I was a kid that, that loved to try things and I played sports. Uh, I was really loving uh, football and other kinds of sports, whether I was good or not that good at them. And then I joined a scout troop in, in, in the area. Um, and it was a big scout troop. Uh, and it, it wasn't a great experience for me, but I loved the idea. I got exposed to uh, hiking and backpacking and being in these places that were not very far away. Uh, and uh, I had never known they were there. These uh, forests, the mountains, like in the San Bernardino Mountains or the San Gabriels, or even the coastline for the north in Ventura or Malibu. Like all these places that I had no idea had existed. So it was this discovery experience. But in that scout troop also, I was bullied. I was kind of, uh, it, which is kind of the culture when you have this hierarchy of, you know, tenderfoot and then you rise through the ranks and you become first class. And then, you, you know, that that military style hierarchy almost fosters some sense of uh, bullying and so I found a smaller troop that was closer to my neighborhood. It was actually in my neighborhood here. And, uh, and that was a really great experience. So it was much smaller and a little more um, close to home. And so I thrived in that environment and I um, ended up going into leadership training and some other really great experiences I had there. And it was my first exposure to really exploring wild places and learning the skills of, of the outdoors person. So things like making a fire or pitching a tent or, you know, learning how to lace your boots, right. And all those little uh, skills you acquire over time, I started learning as a young, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old. So, um, and in my area were several shops that I would go to. And my favorite one was called Adventure 16. And that's where I bought my first hiking boots. And uh, well, my parents bought them for me, of course. Um, and so I had become this, you know, a uh, little outdoor person uh, growing up still in Culver city and still playing sports and doing, you know, having all the trappings around me of growing up in a, you know, in a kind of a middle-class or, or um, neighborhood like that. It was kind of a marginal neighborhood. So there was gang activity and some, some it was very much adjacent to the mid city part of Los Angeles, which is um, pretty tough. A lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, bars on windows and, and that kind of a thing. And so it was it was an interesting experience growing up, trying to do all these different things. And I think uh, at some point in my career, I went to college, uh, ended up at UCLA 
And um, I was working at the shop. I had actually gotten a job at the backpacking store, taking a fairly huge pay cut to go work there after some time in the grocery business, which was how I was working my way through school. And my family has connectivity into that you know, grocery store biz. And um, But I look back now, and I think that was a really uh, important moment. I took a huge pay cut to go work in the outdoor industry, and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, because I ended up in a space where I was excited every day to talk to everybody and they were going off to places near and far. And, and it was this adventure lifestyle or at least a activity that people were doing, um, going off to climb the volcanoes in Mexico or going to Canada to explore Vancouver Island, or just going up into the local mountains to go on a hike. These were all of my customers that were coming in every day. And so it was such a great experience compared to, uh, you know, scanning products across a scanner or most of my work in the grocery business was night shift. So I, I was one of those, uh, you know, um, graveyard. Stopper. Yeah, graveyard shift. Well, back then the stores, well, I guess now they're closed at, you know, night two. And so we'd come in and stock all the shelves and it was, it was grueling work. And I'd literally like wear pat knee pads, shoulder, you know, tape up my hands. And it was kind of a very physical uh, kind of work, which actually, you know, I, I look back now, I'm like, yeah, that's, I do that to try to stay fit now. But back then, of course, that wasn't an issue. Um, anyway, so grocery business into the outdoor retail business. And, um, and because I was so, I, I think, just excited to be there. Uh, I ended up after I graduated from college, I got offered a management job there. And I stuck around, ended up managing uh, stores for the company Adventure 16. And so I very much learned learned the industry from the front lines, I suppose, of the store management experience. At the same time, I was teaching outdoor skills. I'd worked with Outward Bound early on, especially in their urban youth project. So this is where I first got exposed to the idea of diversity and equity and inclusion uh, that today are themes running across all industries. Um, but then it was outward bound trying to figure out how to connect with young people in the urban core who were primarily people of color, people from um, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged or just non-traditional communities going on these outdoor adventures into the mountains and deserts here in Southern California. And um, all being led by white male folks coming in from outside and then going back to where they were from. So there was this sort of surreal experience for a lot of the local kids um, to have these great adventures, but not really connect with the guides or the leaders of them. So it was a little bit like a dream, like, wow, that was great, but I have to, now I'm back in, in my hood and, you know, that whole experience is, is sort of otherworldly to me, so distant, so inaccessible. So they recruited me to work in this project. This is in the late 80s. So, you know, a lot of people think the DEI movement in the outdoor industry is fairly recent, but in fact, it's been going on for a very long time, just very slowly progressing. Um, and so uh, Outward Bound recruited me into this LA Urban Youth Project because they were looking to develop leaders of color in the communities. And I was already teaching outdoor skills for Adventure 16's program. And so it made a nice fit for me to come in. I'm a local kid. I'm a, a person of color identified that way. And so, and my parents went to the local high schools and, you know, I was from these neighborhoods. So it was a lot more, it was an attempt for them to 
make a closer connection to the kids uh, that they were trying to serve. And that program just lasted a couple of years. Uh, Outward Bound moved on to develop more professional development programs. That's where they're putting their energies. Um, um, but that that always stuck with me. And then uh, in 1999, I got recruited to work for the trade show called Outdoor Retailer, which I had only attended as a retailer, um, looking to buy you know products for the store and advise the buyers on technical product, which at that point I had developed an expertise in rock climbing as well as map and compass, um, you know, navigating land navigation. Um, and that's just funny because, uh, you know, I, I'm not particularly expert navigator except for I'm, I'm extremely obsessed with maps. So, uh, one, one of yeah, because I have to be, because I really need to be really good because my natural sense of direction is quite poor. So in my own hometown, I will still make wrong turns and not know exactly where I am. So, so yeah, maybe why I ended up with a degree in geography and environmental policy and a lot of mapping background is uh, because I just, you know, have that obsession with them. Yeah. Maps are fascinating. They, you know, talk about a picture telling a thousand words is like a map tells a thousand stories with a million words, um, depending on how it's curated. So uh, anyway, um, so my love for maps and, you know, developed my expertise in map and compass. And then rock climbing was something I just thought really completed the set when it comes to my passion for sports, but also the mental and um, uh, kind of the challenge of, uh, of mental acuity and staying calm under stress and things that I wasn't used to, like eye-foot coordination and the balance uh, element um, in these precarious positions uh, was really fascinating to me. So I, I got invited at that time. Oh. Yeah. Do you do um, free part, like uh, free rock climbing or do you, are you laid in? Like, uh, are you like uh, one of those adventurous that climb without anything? Uh, yeah, I've, I have, that's called free soloing. I have done some free soloing, but um, pretty much once I started having a family, I stopped doing that. Although I think I did it maybe a few years ago. Um you know, with a friend and in a relatively known and popular route, I wasn't going to pull off any holds that, uh, or get off route because I had someone with me who knew what we were doing. Uh, anyway, I don't free solo much. I don't, um, I do spend a lot of time traditional climbing though, which is ground up, uh, multi-pitch climbing in the Sierra, um, in, in the local mountains, as well as in Joshua tree. And that's my favorite what type of climbing. I've also, uh, I'm also a ski mountaineer, so I've climbed and skied um, uh, a bunch in the Sierra, as well as in the Wasatch and other ranges. So I've, I've taken you know, my sort of scouting uh, curiosity of wild places, you know, to some, to some extreme areas, although not to the Himalaya or to unexplored places in South America or anything like that. It's so, it's still pretty much a domestic climber's life that I've lived in. I, kind of describe myself as a climber with a day job, you know, <laughs> often. <laughs> uh, but I, I got into that through A16 and then went over to the trade show side, which I had really no experience uh, working the trade show, but I did know the industry. I knew, you know, the hundreds of companies that I had done business with over the past 14 years that I was with um, Adventure 16. 
And that was a good background to come into the trade show world serving that same industry of, I'll call it uh, active outdoor industry. Yeah, it's like going on the other side of the table, right? I mean, and once being the retailer is one thing, but then being a part of the exhibit for retailers and brand is another. Um, So it's like you bring so much knowledge into that and, and so many relationships. I can see why that was a great fit for you. Yeah, it's interesting because it wasn't a thing that, and it still actually isn't a thing that trade shows, I will say conventional trade show organizations do is recruit people from the markets that they're serving. Because there's an entire industry of trade shows and of events where there's expertise and there's degrees and there's certificates in just the idea, uh, the skills of producing an event. And, And I'll admit here on your podcast, if you're looking for an event planner, I'm not your guy. <laughs> that's not my natural skill set. And it's not something I went to school to study or, you know, it's something I've been immersed in. Um, but I think that connectivity, the ability to convene people uh, is something I have discovered is somewhat of my, you know, ability to, to serve. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, just fast forward through my time in the trade shows industry, which is, you know, over 20 years now, um, you know, I think that my ability to convene people is based a lot of it on it's I'm a little bit hard to put in a box. You know, I have never worked for a brand, so I can't say I came from the North Face or Patagonia or Timberland or and I worked for a brand. And now I understand the brand viewpoint on the market. I only have ever worked for brand aggregators. So like retailers that have hundreds of brands and then they sell those to the public or guides and outfitters who use products in their day-to-day and they might have relationships with certain brands, but they're using dozens or a hundred different branded products to serve their customers, which are those taking courses or trying to learn the skills of the outdoorist. So um, so I, I, that's sort of a different background than most people have coming into the industry, certainly different background than coming into the trade shows industry. So. Um, they were taking a chance by hiring me. And I, I think um, over time, you know, I was I was always a little bit of a different bird in that in that cage. But um, I think over time, the need to connect with the industry you're serving increased. So it was my, my star sort of rose inside of the company that hired me, which became Nielsen and then became Emerald now um, that that having a person on board who both understood the trade show mechanics and philosophies and industry needs, but also the target market or the market you're serving. So all these trade shows serve specific markets. You know, it's probably 10,000 trade shows and there's 10,000 associations that own or have partnerships with those trade shows. And so these are industry gatherings and they have a particular need for connection and they're all a little bit different they're all kind of quirky and they have their own culture we'll say so you know i think there's sometimes when you when you as a brand are deciding like what shows do we go to you often look for the cultural fit like well sure we could go talk to people in the automotive world or we could go talk to people in the boating and fishing world or we you know you have a lot of options as a brand to decide what where to prioritize your presence and so that cultural fit is really one of the most important things. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on record as saying, well, 
there is no such thing as the outdoor industry. I mean, the outdoor industry is, you know, everything that happens outdoors, including motorized and motorcycles and parachuting and, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. all of that. So I, I think where my expertise comes in is more of a specific slice of that outdoor industry, which, um, yeah, what would you call it? The active outdoor recreation industry that happens on public lands That's right. on, on two feet, mostly, or with a paddle <laughs> or maybe yeah, pedaling a pedaling was, bike. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, you have, so what did you do for the outdoor gear show? You were working on the, with the, the company that put that on, correct? So yes, what I, was what was your role with that? Like, did you have, did you focus on a specific uh, part of the show, or were you over the whole thing? Uh, yeah, great question. I kind of glossed over that. But when I got hired, I was in sales, and I was called an account executive. And an account executive is someone I learned later that that sells squares. Basically, you sell advertising, or you sell. Um, booth space on a trade show floor, or maybe you're selling sponsorships or some other presence, but essentially any, any flat surface is your, is your realm. So I learned that process over years um, of understanding how that, how that whole thing works. Um, so it was really a sales job that introduced me to that. And then eventually I became the sales manager and then the show director of outdoor retailer, hmm. which is not the big gear show. Uh, that came much later. Uh, outdoor retailer has been the gathering place for this human-powered outdoor recreation active industry for for some decades. Launched in the early '80s, this show was in service to these shops like Adventure 16, where I worked, who were selling hiking and camping and backpacking and mountaineering products. And that's really was the core uh, of it. And then there was kind of this parallel industry called the ski industry, which also sold some of those products, um, more insulated and, you know, skiing. And in fact, the winter show about the retailer started in 1990, much later than the summer show, because there was a ski show and we were there for a long time as an industry. Um, and there's an article uh, actually in Outside Business Journal that kind of articulates this history in, in some short form. Um, that talks about why, what are trade shows and why did, when did we start going to them as an industry and when would we become an industry and how, what, what was the lineup of shows and how do we get to the big gear show, which is really a, the most current launch and really a kind of a departure from the conventional shows of, of, uh, in history. And there's a lot of reasons that we could go into about why things progressed the way they did. Yeah, so I am I am really intrigued your departure from OR into this need for something really different, right? Did you go from OR into Big Gear Show or was there a time a period of time that lapsed between those where you just started to see it saying gosh there's a need for something different? Yeah, so I I left out the retailer in 2015 uh and I was after 14, 15 years of working for the trade show. So I'd you know, done a lot of time there uh, and felt like I could 
leverage my expertise and stay focused on the outdoor industry that I came from, which has always been my passion and my goal is to support that outdoor recreation, in, um, that healthy or responsible outdoor recreation on public lands. I think that was such a great experience for me to partake in. And I wanted to share that with more people. And I felt like uh, there were other people in the trade show that could take over and really um, do a great job with that. And so I left and launched my own consultancy to the outdoor industry. Turns out I also got some clients on the trade show side who were looking for ways to be authentic and come into come into the trade show industry with services and offerings. But most of my business, my clients were all from the outdoor side. And I specialized and I still specialize in uh, in strategizing, producing, managing, and adapting events to do better for the organizations running them or the ecosystem of brands and retailers and guides and such that they're they're trying to serve. Um, so so would Elder be one of your clients? No, I didn't leave with that kind of an arrangement. And in, in retrospect, you know, that probably would have been nice, but I had I had a lot of work right out of the gate. So I didn't even think about that. Um, as I came out and there was there were several organizations coming to me and saying, hey, can you help us with our events? And so um, I immediately was drinking from the fire hose of that. So um, and like I said, I think Outdoor Retailer had had, you know, I, I felt like I had built a team there and I had helped contribute to a culture there that allowed them to continue to to um, move in the right direction. Uh, the show was at, in, at an all time high uh, attendance and uh, size of square footage, both winter and summer ORs had lifted into the top 50 shows in the country wow. uh, independently. Together, they would be in the top 10 or 12. So um, I, I feel like I'd done really good work there and it was a great time to kind of make my move. So um, I did that. And um, so it's been seven years. I have worked on other events like Outdoor Press Camp and um, the Grassroots Connect shows and other, you know, other events in the industry that are still going, Outdoor Media Summit, which used to be Outdoor Blogger Summit. Uh, these are all events that I've helped kind of nurture into their current form. Uh, and then the Big Gear Show, which is really my biggest project to date, um, is really a reinvention of uh, the trade show, really from the ground up. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. Tell us why, what was the impetus for you going, all right, let's, let's do something different. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. So uh, really, you know, I'm probably a, a little overstating it, but I think the big gear show really at the end of the day is a, taking the best of what I've learned after 20 years in the trade show industry. And then my partner, Lance Kamasaska and Sutton Bacon, who's our CEO, all come from the outdoor rec industries. They all come from years of experience running events for their sectors. Lance is an expert in the bike industry, and Sutton is an expert in the paddle sports industry, canoeing, kayaking, stand-up paddle, that world. And so coming together, uh, we had a ton of experience serving these markets, but we were not, we were not um, held to kind of the needs of a of an investor base or of shareholders or of people who had, um, you know, more short-term interests in what the show needed to produce. And so we were able to kind of just brainstorm and, and build this event and adapt during the first 
year of the pandemic. It was when we were launching. So it was an auspicious time, to say the least. But I think really to be able to bring those, you know, the things that we wanted to do back at the other shows, but then we never we couldn't really make it happen. That's what we were able to bring to life here. And, um, you know, including producing an all outdoors event, which in some industries just wouldn't work, you know, uh, wouldn't wouldn't be great for the medical products industry or, uh, you know, plenty of other sectors that require uh, a very controlled environment, um, you know, from lighting to temperature to wind to all of that. And, uh, you know, that's not outdoor rec isn't isn't like that you know we all we know how, how to operate outdoors most of our all of our products are really designed to be out there so why not bring that pro, bring that product story to life in the elements in the nature or environment that it was built for um also mm-hmm. focusing even though we're spreading a wider tent when it comes to including bike and paddle and overland which is a motorized you know van life type of thing uh, along with run and backpacking and mountaineering and climbing and all of the sort of usual suspects of our outdoor rec industry, um, we're, we're focusing down on really the gear that gets people outdoors. So, you know, there, and this is a, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole. If you want to know like why shows are timed the way they are and how come they go, you know, to specific places and why do they do it that way? And the answers all lie in, sort of the buy sell cycle and the supply chain of that industry and how it works. And, and so we're, you know, in a lot of ways trying to break that model. We're trying to um, re-emphasize the participation, especially now when there are so many new participants, you know, the pandemic has created this flood of people just jonesing to get outside and to get out of their cooped up offices and homes and um, cellars or wherever they've been been inside and get some fresh air to spend some time in the sun. You know, there was that, that visceral need that we all felt as we were getting locked down to actually go against that. And I think that speaks to why I even loved getting outdoors as a kid or discovering it when I was uh, younger was I had this sense of um, discovery out there, like, Oh my goodness, there, there are places that are untouched by, by buildings or roads or, or um, human construction or evidence of human presence at all. You know, I, I was able to experience these natural places, um, not really having seen them much as a kid. And I think that is the same spirit that powered this um, latest push to, for people to really get outdoors and, and invest some time and a little bit of money into uh, exploring the natural places, whether they were close to home or these iconic parks and legendary uh, places of of our of our country. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's what I think um, a time that that's what speaks to this participation focus for us. Like, and I've seen this happen over my career in, in other industries where they get kind of enamored with the the lifestyle pieces, the li- the look and the. Um, the personal badging of uh, I'm an outdoor, you know, enthusiast. I'm an outdoor person because of how what I look like or how I wear my clothes and shoes. And um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I I also understand that as a retailer, you need those products to keep people coming into your store and to drive profitability. So I'm not trying to discount that category. But if we are as an industry are going to get obsessed with that 
somewhere we have to focus on the participation because I've seen it happen in other industries where uh, it's all about the what's happening right now. And we forget to invest while times are good in keeping those people excited about products and innovation and uh, elements that get them outdoors. Um, and, and then eventually the, you know, the cliff drop happens and you end up climbing, you know, you're trying to climb out of that hole and then it becomes kind of a market share war and, and you're fighting for shrinking market share. And for me as a brand aggregator, I only benefit if the whole industry benefits, if there's more pie for everybody. I don't benefit if Marmot takes market share from the North Face or Patagonia takes market share from, you know, whoever, Timberland. Um, right. So the, my, my brain just works that way. It's like, how can we keep this whole thing afloat and lift all the boats? Mm-hmm. So it's getting, it's really getting more customers out there doing the things in nature that are going to buy the products, but I, also it's innovation too. I mean, you can't, I think that that is a huge driver to get people outdoors is the innovation, making things. And that's the whole reason we made our product the way it is, is it is getting people out there that carry are carrying heavy stuff so we can get it all there. You're not taking multiple trips and then you can have a seating or laying down option when you get there. So it's being, it's being innovative in the market to, and we feel like we're able to get, you know, a lot of people outdoors just because just for the simple reason we have something that they can carry all their stuff and it's not a pain in the rear end to get to the beach or to the camping site anymore. So we've made it easier. We've actually lowered the hurdle for them, for them to get outdoors and do, do things they, they really love to do. I absolutely agree with that. And I, and access is something I'm passionate about and, you know, not just the word of it, but, uh, I spent nine years on the Access Fund board, which is really a climbing organization. However, the the elements of what allow climbers to remain uh, or to gain access to climbing areas are the same elements of people just getting to the trailhead or getting to the beach or getting their boat or their product or just their cooler from like, you know, the parking lot to the campsite. I mean, that's sometimes exactly the a hurdle that you're talking about. And each of those little hurdles make it harder for people to get over, get past them. And they just say, you know what, forget it. Let's just go back to ballet lessons and uh, piano and, you know, soccer practice or whatever. Right. And so uh, I think, you know, if we see ourselves as stewards of pe- more people gaining access, we need to increase that access to people that are older, people that are younger, people that are not historically or generationally informed about going into the wild places. So I think what what you're doing is exactly the sort of thing that the Big Gear Show is excited to deliver um, and that the industry is excited to continue to celebrate and amplify. You know, that's one of the key things. So for example, at the Big Gear Show, you know, we've tried to make this a much more affordable platform, more down to earth. And yeah, it's on a parking lot and it's canopy. You know, there's no fancy half million dollar booths being put up at the Big Gear Show. The, you know, it's really about the people and the product. And and it's not as much about the fancy presentation to attract investors and that, which, you know, you may in your career arc or your brand arc want to do someday. But I'm not going to promise you that the Big Gear Show is going to deliver those folks. 
Um, but what you'll see and, and what we're focused on uh, is, is creating a place where smaller brands, smaller stories can be told. Small to medium-sized brands are, are, the, are 100% of our exhibitor base. You're not going to see like the big, massive brands who already, they're already in every store. They're already known by the general public. Um, you know, they don't really need our little, our show up in uh, Park City. But, um, but I think that for the retailers where we're focused on the specialty shops, that's where they have always had the edges. They find the little things first that help, help the brand kind of get a base before you, you know, rocket into distribution from, you know, at Dick's Sporting Goods or via Walmart or whatever the end game is, um, you know, it's those shops that we're focused on, those community centers that across the country um, help people have a place to go to discover or to meet up or to ask a lot of questions and and learn about getting outdoors in the local community and, and with that local expertise that Amazon and, you know, uh, it's going to be hard for those big box or the big uh, online players to do that sort of thing. And so we try to help really stay focused on those specialty shops and the brands that serve them. Yeah. So the big year show, is it open to the public, to consumers, or is it strictly retailers and brands? This year, it's strictly retailers, brands and working media. So back to the amplifier thing. So yep. we do, we, last year we had 71 working media, which doesn't sound like a lot, but these are all vetted media people. So we know that they are actually journalists and not selling ad space or doing production that just happened to live nearby or whatever. Um, so we try to really curate. And I think this is the secret for all shows going forward is to curate the audience so that it's really valuable to the exhibitors and you're not just trying to impress with big general numbers, but you're really right. delivering. We're really delivering. Um, each person that's there um, is there for a reason, and you have a, a very valuable contact there. Even if they're playing in the bike market, and that's not really your target today, uh, or they're embedded in paddle sports in a region that you guys don't, you know, distribute. Whatever the elements are, we are trying to deliver that high quality audience, and so. Um, and, and do it in an affordable way. See, that's the thing of other, some of the other conventional shows. It's yeah, expensive. I, yeah. It, it's, you know, even just to get a little space is, you know, in the end, because it's, it's not just the space you're paying for, of course, it's, you know, the drayage and the shipping and the, you know, every, yeah. a, in the conventional trade show business, there's a lot of subcontractors that have their, um, you know, services at the ready for you. But if you're a startup or if you're really like, you know, a scrappy uh, brand, it's really hard these days to, to afford to get above that bar. You know, talk about access, right? Yeah. So you'll see brands at the big gear show that you, you will it's not true, see yeah. exhibiting so, at other shows. I love it. Uh, yeah. We're, we're exhibiting at that and we are thrilled to be a part of that with you guys. So um, yeah, we can't wait to see how it is and, and how it amplifies our brand. We're excited about it. Um, so, Kenji, you've done a lot of things. You've been featured in a lot of things. You were just named uh, one of the top 20 people in the outdoor space by the Outdoor Business Journal, which is amazing. Congratulations to you. Um, you, have, you have made a profound impact on 
the outdoor space and specifically however you want to categorize it. But on people recreating outside, you have been um, a big advocate for that and proponent for the growth of that space. So you've done a lot. What's been a highlight for you in your career of something that you look back on and say, I'm really proud of that. What, what is that? And there's probably more than one yeah. thing that comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, there is. I think that in that article you're referencing, you know, the 20 top influential people of the outdoor industry, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is that a lot of those people are, I know, or I even mentored a bit. And so that part of it is really, uh, you know, it really feels gratifying. And but But I think going back, if I look at my career arc, you know, I think the the decision to get involved with um, with advocacy organizations, you know, really volunteering my time like this is I know people today really value that. I've seen the ranks of volunteers uh, like in my work with Friends of Joshua Tree, which is really what I wanted to mention is, you know, deciding to go volunteer my time with Friends of Joshua Tree, which is a little local climbing organization here in Southern California, um, kind of bridging the gap between the needs of the gateway community of Joshua Tree, the this climbing community, which has grown so uh, exponentially over the past years, and the needs of the park, the resource itself. How do we kind of serve all those? I've learned a lot. And I think that my experience just doing that was a thing that people were questioning. And, and you know, luckily my, my wife, Susan, you know, one of those, you know, results of choosing to work at Adventure 16 was meeting her and, mm-hmm. and you know, having a partner uh, to go through all this with who believes in me and who, you know, didn't say question, you know, hey, we're not, we don't have very much money and we don't have very much time. And why are you donating time to these, you know, organizations? Like you have your own family, you have, you have me, you know, um, but she understood, like she sort of saw that, like, okay, well, you know, this is his way of giving back. And it truly was like, I knew going to work for outdoor retailer, I wasn't going to have a lot of time free to go climbing in Joshua tree and, you know, do, do my thing. And so part of my decision, and once I was invited to join that organization as a volunteer board director was, well, at least it'll keep me in touch with what's happening in Joshua tree. And maybe I'll have a reason to get out there. That's more than just, you know, I just need to get some climbing in. Um, so that decision was also really elemental. And I think that led me to my time on the access fund board. And even today, uh, on the steering committee of the recreate responsibly coalition, which is a national coalition of over a thousand organizations, including all the, uh, federal agencies, you know, so it's just like this, um, this arc has unveiled itself, but it required kind of this volunteer mentality. And mm-hmm. I think that that is something I'm, you know, I'm proud I was able to, because nobody has time for that. I mean, I have three kids, I, I have a crazy life, busy life. Uh, I, this isn't the only event project. I'm on the Outdoor Media Summit and I produced this Climb Smart event, Joshua Tree. And, you know, I'm all over the map. And I feel like I'm juggling, you know, chainsaws and basketballs and hacky sacks and all of it. But I still make time, you know, and um, especially the time where at Friends of Joshua Tree, where we went from fighting against the park and being sort of combative with the park, who we felt were trying to take away our access and reduce climbing to a non-activity, 
to now partners of the park. Like we are a, a valued partner. We have a, a memorandum of agreement with the National Park Service uh, as a local climbing organization. Not everyone does that. And, um, and we work with them. We're the primary funding source for the search and rescue team there. We do a lot of the bolt replacement and, and um, that sort of work, which is safety investment. Um, we, we have climber stewards in the park now that we fund and, and uh, support that program. And mm -hmm. so it's changed, you know, having seen that arc over the years, I think I look back and I feel like that's really the, um, that's really the thing I'm most proud of is, is that, um, that thing that's outside of my work, but it still connects to my passion. And I, I would encourage any of your listeners to, you know, to, to look for ways to get involved. I think that it means a lot and it'll actually be additive to, to, to your enjoyment of the wild places in the future. If you can go out, for example, and take your young child and say, Hey, this is a trail that I helped build, or, Hey, this is a, a kiosk that, you know, we had put in place. So people are more informed before they get outdoors or whatever the thing is. Um, I, I really think that it's, um, it's worth it if you can, uh, you know, find a good fit and, and every single outdoor recreation resource in the country needs your support in that way. Well, and I think getting out there and getting involved, it gives you an appreciation for not only being outside and the education that you get doing that, but for the work that goes into maintaining those spaces, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, just all across the board, the education of being able to being out there and getting involved is, it's just a, it comes back tenfold, right? So the blessing is tenfold when you go out there and give up your time. Um, it's a good thing. So I, I love that mindset. I love that mentality. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I also, I also think um, that, you know, land management agencies and including water uh, resources and, estuaries and and protected areas they're not getting more budget historically in fact they've been starved out of budget for decades and so as user as the user base ex expands quite quickly many of them are getting overrun right now and they can't even handle planning volunteer activities uh, because they're so far on their heels and not, not to mention sort of the backlog of maintenance work um, but now addressing this increase in demand. So it's, uh, I've seen it certainly in Joshua Tree, but I know it's it all around, all around the country. You know, uh, I serve on a board that I helped found called the California Outdoor Recreation Partnership. And this is a state level organization that is looking to amplify our voice and our effectiveness as, a, as an industry inclusive of those that take people outdoors and introduce people like, you know, to these guiding organizations, outfitters um, and affinity groups like Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro, you know, being able to take these um, stories and advocate in Sacramento for investment in, in these maintenance and increasing, you know, the close to home recreation opportunities for people, because, you know, going to Joshua Tree and waiting in line for two hours to get into the park is not a fun experience. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, especially knowing that a few miles away, there's other places that are equally as beautiful and completely, uh, you know, not popular or not, uh, not crowded. 
And yeah. I think that close to home investment and that ability to you know create more, whatever it is, awareness, what? signage, directions, tools, online tools. You know, this is uh, some of the work that Corp is looking to do, as well as the Recreate Responsibly Coalition, um, you know, Corp in California, Recreate Responsibly nationwide. Yeah. Uh, I have a comment and then yeah. one qu- last question. I mean, we have um, traveled for the last year around the United States and we paid $80 a year to do get the National Parks Pass. It is worth every single penny um, because usually it's $25 plus to get into a national park. Um, and it has, we have gotten to experience and gotten to visit so many of the national parks um, for $80 that gets our car in for a year. Uh, and wow, it's just beautiful, but to, and then even the state parks, we've stayed in some state parks and you're right. The, the, the volunteer services, I mean, most of those people don't get paid to be there and, and show people around or answer questions. A lot of them are volunteers. So we appreciate that. Um, and so, but that's just my, that was my comment. My question, and I think we probably need to wrap it up is, um, if there was one activity, that you could do for the rest of your life with your family, what would it be? With my family? Oh, well, that was the, because I was just going to say, well, I, I plan on climbing until I'm, you know, <laughs> hanging on the rope, you know, with no pulse. But, uh, um, you know, I don't, I don't put that on my family. I, I have taken all my kids climbing and expose them to it and invite them whenever I'm going, whether it's to the gym or out, into the wild, but, um, I wouldn't, I don't lay that on them. You know, if they want to climb, then great. I am totally here for you. So I would say that, you know, if they wanted to climb with me, uh, that'd be awesome. But I think uh, actually the thing I didn't talk about really much at all is this other coping mechanism in my life. Um, which is kind of how this thing's, you know, how I see my passionate interest in, in being in the wild places and backpacking and climbing and mountaineering and being outdoors is really like coping with my, the stress of sort of the daily life of a guy who lives in the city. And, um, but the other thing I do is I play music. And one thing I've always dreamed of is to share with my family is like to have a family band and (laughs) to make, make music together. And so maybe I'll tie it together like this, you know, to have a family band, that plays around the campfire out in an amazing wild place that's protected and accessible. Um, and to have that experience of making music with my family in the outdoors. That's kind of like the uh, exciting thing. Get get them a ukulele and a kazoo and you guys will be making some music together. Well, you, you know what I I, I will, we'll do a different podcast around that topic because I got some, I've got some thoughts about that, but I have a question. I have a question before you uh, cut me loose. What uh, I have a question for you back to your annual pass that national yeah. park pass. Yeah. So, I mean, 80 bucks is like, it's like pretty affordable, right? What would you pay for that pass now that you know what it's, what it gets you access to? A couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Right? I mean, to have access to the national parks. I mean, we've had access to them traveling for a year. Not everybody has that kind of access. Um, but even if, it, if you know that you're going uh, for a month in the summer, it's still worth 80, the $80 if you're going to hit two or three of them. And, and it's for your whole family. 
I mean, our national parks are breathtaking. Like, I mean, they are beyond what I ever imagined, particularly the ones more obviously out West. Um, But I mean, I, to be able to be in that beauty, like Joshua tree and Yellowstone, and I mean, there's white sands and there's so many that we've been able to go to and it's worth every penny. You know, it's, I always say, cause our product is not cheap and people are like, Oh, it's so expensive. You know, some people do. And I'm like, no, you spend money on what you value. Like some people with no money have 65 inch TVs in their home. Right. (laughs) And BMWs in their driveway. BMWs in their driveway. And so you, we spend money on what we value. And so if you value being outside in the wonder and the beauty of places like our national parks, I mean, even a couple hundred dollars to me is so inexpensive for the beauty that you get. To and see. some of them are free. I mean, we went through, we went and saw the uh, redwoods and uh, I mean, and that was completely free to drive through there. We didn't pay anything. Wasn't any gate. It was mm-hmm. amazing. Or we went to, uh, I've been to Mount Rushmore twice. That's free. You drive by and you know, you can see everything. So, I mean, then there's still people taking care of these yeah, there's maintenance there's required. maintenance that is required and so yeah. there's so many things that we can do I mean, we were in california for six months in southern california and the hiking available to you the most we ever had to pay was five dollars for parking um to get to go and do a three and a half four hour hike to see some of the most beautiful um vistas that you could possibly see uh and so to me Whatever it costs, it's worth it. If it's getting me outdoors yeah. and it's getting me to, to see the, the the United States in all of its glory. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and, and just to wrap it, I think, you know, creating that experience or facilitating it for more people, you know, people that aren't historically immersed in the outdoor culture or, or they're coming from a, a different uh, background or community that um, hasn't had that opportunity or even is you know, has, has a fear around it. Um, I think that is really our, you know, that's really where we need to invest. I think that I get it, you know, that people are already, you know, land managers are already reeling from the number of people coming. And here I am saying, no, we need to have more people. We want more inclusivity. We need more people of color outdoors, more people from the LGBTQ plus community, more people from the disabled world to be able to access it, older people, younger people, you know, and you have developments like e-bikes that allow that expansion of participation. But, you know, it, I get that, but I do think that we can invest too in the hardening, uh, you know, creating the ability for us to visit these places because you're right, you know, America, there's nowhere like here that's protected its natural places, you know, and we're part of this initiative of 30 by 30 to protect 30% of our public lands by 2030 like that's coming up pretty fast but that's an investment in exactly what you're talking about for more people including tourists and people with you know bmws in their driveway in germany (laughs) coming here and you know having an amazing time and contributing financially to the restaurants and services that are in the gateway communities for example and changing the economy at the end of the day you know from a lot of these places are places that have historically been exploited for resources, whether that's oil and gas or minerals or ranching. Um, 
and you know, we need those things too on our public land. So this isn't an either or. However, if we can convert some of these communities to a more sustainable recreation economy, then we are we are changing the world, aren't we? I mean, we are making an investment in protecting these places in their natural state for people to come and visit and offer something completely unique to the most people of the world. Even yeah. Europe, when you go to Europe, you know, you can travel around. There's some amazing mountain ranges and uh, and water bodies and all of that, but it is all populated with dwellings and people and roads and and manicured um forests you know i so that's not what you get when you come out to you know the white sands you walk out of the white sands there's no you know you're you're occupying a huge plot of untracked unroded wild land that just happens like that yeah nobody poured a bunch of bleach on the sand exactly Um, it's insane and it's insane beautiful um, i only went there maybe um like three or four years ago was the first time i went there and it was it was really amazing and you're right yeah I mean, there's just so many places i have yet to even go and take my family and um so that's a, a lifetime of of wonder to be able to you know appreciate and and when you appreciate it you defend it right and i think that's right. part of my uh, secret goal of of my advocacy and in, 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 in inclusive inclusion and diversity and equity outdoors is is that by by incurring or encouraging more people and including more people we can defend our our places better and um you know compete frankly for these for access to the land so that we're not gated out we're not uh you know entering a dangerous area where there's plumes of pollution or fire or other you know other elements that are you know, we're dealing with right now in, in a, a much bigger way than we ever have had to before. Absolutely. Kenji, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for saying yes to this and for all the um, inspiration that I feel like you've just given over the last 45 minutes or hour or so. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot and for giving me opportunity. And I'm sure you'll generously use the edit button to cut, cut my uh, uh, down a bit. But I look forward to seeing you in August in Park City. So um, we'll see OME live and in person and hopefully uh, actually in action, too. Absolutely, you will. We'll be demoing all day long for sure. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much for listening today. We sure do appreciate it. Uh, We know that you have so many different podcast episodes that you could have chosen from, but you've chosen this one. And so we're super grateful. So thanks so much. And we hope that after spending a little bit of time with us, you're inspired to go do something outside and protect this great land that we get to live on. Go make it a great day. Thanks. Thanks.